0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Good morning. This is Lisa Dale. I am the Associate Director for the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. This is our podcast on the environment. And I'm sitting here with Dr. Hans Brunix. He is the director of the European Environment Agency. And I will turn it over to him to give us a broader introduction to who he is and what he does. Hans?
1: Well, I'm actually the director of the European Environment Agency. And I think that signifies already a big difference with the EPA here in the US. We're not an executive agency. We don't regulate anything or anybody. We don't permit. We don't uh, do field uh, checks on what companies or others are doing. We are more a knowledge institution of the European Union. So we gather all the data, information, indicators on environment and climate issues for 39 European countries. That's the 28 of the EU and then a bunch of other countries. And we report on the state of the environment, on how this is linked to uh, environmental policy performance. And what I also think uh, distinguishes us a bit from the EPA is that we have a 20-year outlook. Uh, So we look forward to if we continue on this trajectory or if we go to other policies, what would Europe look like when it comes to climate and environment policies.
0: So does your agency then interact with the regulators within the countries of your network?
1: Yeah, we work at the European level where the the regulator is the European Commission and the European Parliament in essence, and we work together with all the member countries. So we work together with the network of all the EPAs in the countries We have uh, around 25 networks of specialists where all the countries are represented on air quality, water quality, climate change mitigation, adaptation, and they gather in Copenhagen where we are located or in some other place uh, at least once a year. And we also have a network of all the heads of environmental protection agencies in Europe that gather to set strategic policies and discuss the orientation of where we should be going And we work with a network of about 150 research institutions across Europe. So we are really a networked knowledge organization that works with and for the regulators in Brussels and in the different capitals in Europe.
0: What are the most pressing issues facing your organization today? What are you working on?
1: Well, I think that is pretty obvious. Uh, It's three essential policy objectives uh, that Europe has set for 2050. It's one, we need to go to a carbon uh, neutral society. Uh, So we will uh, decarbonize uh, by at least 80% compared to 1990 in 2050. That's a huge challenge and low carbon society development. Secondly, uh, we will move from a linear economic model to a more circular model away from digging up resources, designing not so good products, using a little bit of the time and then either dumping them or burning them or sort of recycling them in a not so clever way. We will go to a more circular economy where the design stage will be very important because you design products to be uh, recycled into the materials flow. And then thirdly, it's ecosystem resilience, because uh, we've made great progress on fighting pollution, as you have in the US, I think. But that has not delivered when it comes to stronger ecosystems and ecosystem resilience. So we are really focusing on protecting and enhancing uh, the natural capital base uh, in Europe, because it is the fundamental basis on which we built our societies. And uh, regardless of the success stories in fighting pollution, we have not really made the necessary breakthroughs when it comes to fundamentally protecting ecosystems.
0: I think it is no secret that most of the world regards Europe as much farther down the road toward a low-carbon society and a a low-carbon economy. How do you see the challenge of working with the rest of the world to achieve these goals more globally?
1: Well, I think the only way for Europe to, uh, to work with other partners, and I'm looking at Asia in first instance, and of of course also uh, North America, Australia, Japan, is to have credible and strong domestic policies. So with 28 countries in Europe, since 1990, we've seen our economies grow by more than 45 percent, and we have seen our emissions decrease by more than 20 percent. So that means that that we have really decoupled economic performance from uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And I think this is a sort of leading by example because the Kyoto Protocol was signed and ratified by many countries. But Europe is actually the only region that in a binding fashion with 28 countries has delivered on the commitments. And we have now framed for 2030 a minus 40%. Uh, in greenhouse gas emissions compared to 1990 with domestic measures, so no more flexible mechanisms. And that is well on the line to reaching the minus 80% uh, emission uh, cuts for 2050. So I think you lead by example. We have also been, I would say, policy entrepreneurs. We have developed policy instruments and approaches that are now used in other places uh, and adapted obviously to the local context like China and India and Australia has done that uh, to a certain extent. And I also think there is a strong belief in Europe that this uh, green, uh, circular, low-carbon economy is really the economy for the future. So um, since the crisis of 2008, the green economy has created 1.5 million jobs in Europe, whereas most most other parts have really suffered uh, from unemployment. And so people believe in this. And when you look at uh, the size of Europe in the global economy, you know, in terms of people, we're now eight, nine percent of the global population. This will only decrease because other areas are growing much faster. But uh, we tend to frame it as we we could be the Silicon Valley of the 21st century, resource-efficient economy, and uh, you do that by investing, by research and development, by. You know, all doing the right things and lining up your options towards that low-carbon, circular, high-ecosystem-resilient type of economy.
0: Well, certainly the U.S. has a lot to learn by following in the example. We're all looking ahead to December in Paris, to the UNFCCC and talks there. What are your hopes, fears, expectations for what will transpire in Paris this December?
1: Well, the hope... Uh, is clear, it's everybody on board, so no separation anymore between, I would say, the rich uh, uh, countries and, and the poor countries, as we had in Kyoto, everybody on board. And I think that is a principle that is pretty much accepted uh, uh, a month and a half or two months before the summit. Then the other thing is to stay below two degrees yeah, through these commitments that countries are making. And we already know that uh, this is highly unlikely which I think is a disappointment. Uh, So the focus will now be on having a credible process to fill the gap, close the gap, when it comes to uh, the difference between 3.5 degrees, where we're now, and 2 degrees. Uh, Only 60 countries have committed uh, to anything specific, and it's not going to be enough. And the third thing is obviously that we need credible implementation uh, connected to that, and that refers to the financing mechanism, That refers to the transfer of technology systems. That also refers to making this a binding thing domestically. And for Europe, this is clear. We go there, we say minus 40% at least by 2030. And this is binding. I mean, this is what the European countries say they will do. Um, Other countries will have to go through processes of ratification, which, of course, in this country will not be easy. A two-thirds majority in the Senate for a binding climate treaty. Um, I think very few people are optimistic about that. So I think the the challenge will be to find binding mechanisms that maybe do not need that sort of uh, political ratification in the Senate, but again, that's the US political system and you will have to deal with that here.
0: Yeah, I think that many here share that concern that getting a ratified treaty signed here in the U.S. is going to be very challenging and instead we are looking for other ways to move forward that don't involve that, that level of support in the Senate because um, that's challenging for us certainly. Can you speak a little bit about the, the difference, differences and challenges associated with mitigation as opposed to adaptation and how those are likely to play out in Paris?
1: I think when we met uh, in the 1990s on, under the UNFCCC, it was clear that mitigation was, was the thing. I mean, we thought uh, in those days, or at least politically, they thought that if, if the big industrial countries would cut emissions, that we would, we would get there. That is clearly not the case. Uh, there is already climate change. We are experiencing serious impact uh, also in Europe. And so we will have to mitigate. So this is very important because if, if mitigation becomes an important second topic in these global negotiations, all of a sudden a host of other countries are important players around the table. You know, if you think of the small island states, which are in mitigation minor players when it comes to uh, adaptation, if sea level rises, they will be wiped out. I mean, all of a sudden, that is a very important discussion. If you talk about the poorest countries on the planet that are heavily dependent on uh, um, processes of soil degradation and desertification due to climate change, all of a sudden, East Africa is becoming a very important player around the table, if for nothing else, about uh, getting the resources and the technology to deal with it, but also in moral and ethical Ways. They have a, a strong claim around the table now. So adaptation has shifted, I think, the political involvement to a certain extent. It has also put an emphasis on financing mechanisms that go beyond the mitigation type mechanisms. And thirdly, I also think it uh, it's not such an easy topic. I mean, climate adaptation is based on the idea that mitigation will be at least moderately successful in order to give adaptation a chance. So those who think, well, we now have adaptation so we can forget about mitigation, I think they will be in for a tough ride because uh, if we go to three and a half, four, four and a half degrees, adaptation uh, will not be a smooth ride, that's for sure. It will be more disruption and then trying to deal with it than uh, rational adaptation.
0: And you touched on financing, and that's an area that we've worked on at the center. We've talked quite a bit about the need for leveraging private capital better than we do now, looking to broader sources of financing aside from just public money. Do you have thoughts on that? Does your agency work on that aspect of this issue?
1: Yes, we do. Um, I think it's clear that the separation between private and public is probably a bit more artificial than what most people would think. You often need public money to make first type of high risk investments and, and bring companies to the table to then bring their resources when it comes to investing in new technology. So there there is very convincing research that illustrates how an intelligent mix of private and public funding in R&D, for example, delivers you the best uh, results. Um, but it's, it's obviously necessary that, that big corporations uh, will contribute to both mitigation and adaptation. Um, one of the ways we are doing this in Europe is we, we are just uh, setting up a €320 billion uh, Euro investment fund under the current commission that will be guided by the European Investment Bank. Um, And there is a big part of that money that will be used to stimulate private and public investments in the direction of uh, low carbon development, uh, renewable energy systems, uh, better grids in Europe, electric grids, smart grids, uh, that type of work. So I think rather than making that sharp distinction, which to some might be ideologically pleasing... uh, I think we should rather focus on how public and private capital and funds can work together in producing the best results.
0: One one issue that has come up again recently, as you know, for many years in the United States, resistance to climate action has often taken the form of people arguing that until China takes more aggra- aggressive action, the U.S. should do nothing. And last week, China announced the development of a cap-and-trade system within its borders. I think the implementation of that announcement remains to be seen. But how do you think that announcement changes the dynamic of the climate discussion worldwide? Or does it?
1: Well, I think it's extremely important that China is coming forward with uh, a number of clear uh, objectives, statements, uh, commitments ahead of uh, the summit. And that's extremely important, and of course it puts the pressure on other big players who have not done so and you can think of India uh, as one of those players, but also some other large countries, and probably the u s has also not been as explicit as China on some issues, so yeah it's it's shifting the pressure onto uh, others. Now, we should also not be naive. It's not because two people at the top in China say, let's go left, that all of a sudden 1.4 billion people are going left. I mean, it's also a highly bureaucratic country that has embedded ways of doing things. There are also lock-ins there in non-sustainable systems of energy production and agriculture and deforestation. And So with a sense of realism, I would say they understand the issue rapidly now, if for nothing else, that people are protesting against environmental degradation and pollution in cities more and more. Uh, And they are clearly showing some political leadership and commitment when it comes to international negotiations. So, yeah, the the pressure is rising on those who have not done that.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much for your time, Hans. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we sign off today?
1: Yeah, I think one of of the things I would like to say is that... uh, we should all understand that there is a sense of urgency on these matters. Uh, scientists are rather convincingly demonstrating that regardless of the uncertainties in some of the modeling and, and all of that, that the window is closing <clears throat> to stay below two degrees or to protect key uh, ecosystems or to uh, to live within the limits of the planet, uh, to, to say it in that way. Um, and if you're born today, you will be 35 years old in 2050. Yeah? If we follow the sort of global uh, international environmental agreements and you look at the European agenda, if you're born today, we promise you in Europe that you will live in a low-carbon society, in a circular economy with resilient ecosystems. So I don't think we have a lot of time to waste because we've got a lot of work ahead of us uh, with a high sense of urgency.
0: Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. That was Dr. Hans Brunix from the European Environment Agency. Thank you. Thank
1: you.